Hi everybody, welcome. Today is Tuesday the 22nd of November 2022 and today I am delighted to welcome to our recovery from relapse meeting Laurie C. And Laurie first came to OA in February 1986 and he's now going to share his experience, strength and hope. Oh and he, most importantly he's from Winnipeg in Canada. So I'll hand it over to him now. Take it away Laurie. Thank you, Rita. I'm Laurie. I'm a compulsive overeater, and I, I first said those words February the 11th of 1986. Um, but my abstinence date uh, is approximately May the 1st of 1993. I went through seven years of relapse, and I learned a lot from that experience, and I hope I learned what might be able to avert relapse in other people. Relapse is not part of recovery. It does occur. Um, but it is a matter of figuring out what mistakes one makes in relapse and avoiding those mistakes if you still haven't relapsed. Um, let me start off with a simple proposition that uh, is, has been proved by millions and millions of addicts with dozens and dozens of addictions, that the 12 steps uh, work, that they, when you practice the 12 steps in the way that works, it works and you have a recovery. Now, what is that recovery? That recovery is not that you are abstaining from what you should be abstaining. It is that you don't want to go back or return to that which you are abstaining from. That you have this incredible miracle of being able to be around the things that used to tempt you and not want them. And that's, that's the recovery that's promised by the 12 steps. Behind that is the concept that Rita mentioned it earlier uh, of what is called in AA literature, the double whammy uh, that defines through the big book and in our OA 12 and 12 and in other OA literature that defines the addiction that we have. And that is that we have a dual problem and it creates a vicious circle. On the one hand, once we indulge in certain things, and I'll get into what that means in a way, we get uncontrollable cravings that mean that at times we can't stop from doing what we're doing or indulging in what we're indulging in. That would not be a problem, however, if we were sane human beings, because sane human beings know that if something causes you problems, you abstain from it. You just don't do it. Our real problem lies in the mind. The mind gives us reasons to return to that which we know we should not be indulging in. And that mind can use reasons that are traumatic and awful and sad, as so many of my friends in OA have suffered uh, in, in the past or are suffering now. Uh, or it can be silly reasons that just come to mind that seem good at the time. And, and, but in all cases, they're never good enough. You know, that wonderful AA question, so how's that working for you? That work uh, is applicable both to people who uh, comfort themselves because of the traumas that they felt and just end up feeling worse and worse and worse as a result of what they go to for comfort, uh, as it does for people who uh, say, well, I exercised a lot so I can have some. Um, and it doesn't work. It just is a worse and worse feeling. So if the 12 steps work, why do we relapse? And I, I want to start, and I know, you know, there are so many people in this room whose names and faces are familiar to me. 
And uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry if you hear some repetition, but there are some newcomers here. So there's fresh blood and fresh ears. Uh, so I'll, I'll talk to them about that. Um, oh, I, I, the double whammy, by the way, is once we start, we can't stop. And we can't stop from starting again. That's the vicious circle that we're in. The, the cravings mean that we continue to indulge. And the, and the uh, mind problem is that even if we've been away for a while, like on a diet for many of us, our mind gives us permission to return. And we can't get rid of this. And it's a vicious circle that explains all the yo-yo dieting I ever went on. I, I mean, I really identify with this double whammy. I want to start off by talking about the peculiar nature of Overeaters Anonymous and the two major barriers that a lot of other abuse or addiction fellowships don't have. The first is that for the 99% of us, the addiction is not dramatic. In other words, if we indulged once and even continue to indulge, it would not cause us an immediate catastrophic situation. We wouldn't we don't gamble away our entire life savings. Um, we don't indulge in a drug and run in traffic uh, not knowing where we are. We don't overdose. Uh, uh, you know, we, we, we don't put ourselves in dangerous situations. Well, we do, but it's not dramatic. We suffer, whether we are under-eaters or over-eaters, we suffer from an addiction that is piece by piece killing us, death by a thousand cuts. We know what stands at the end of the road. And it's it's not just death, but it's early death. And it's debilitating death. And it's deteriorating death. And it's not a pretty sight. Whether we're under eaters or over eaters, it's not a pretty sight. We are subjected to more um, diseases, physical diseases, mental problems problems in getting on with life, more dependence upon other people, gradual um, loss of the use of various of our organs or our senses, uh, early death at times, painful death for some, uh, but it isn't dramatic. It's, it's, you know, and we are one of the last vices left, gambling I think is the other, that actually has has uh, TV channels available to us to uh, reinforce our addictions, uh, whether it's the fashion channels that reinforce uh, undereating, uh, or whether it's the food channels that reinforce uh, overeating, um, all the diet programs and all the uh, medical programs that uh, seem to offer relief, but really make us the promise that once we either gain our weight if we're underweight or lose our weight, if we're overweight, we will be able to indulge in everything we want to indulge in, uh, in moderation. Um, so we're one of the last socially acceptable vices, one of the last socially accepted addictions. And these all stand in the way of our taking it seriously as a life or death addiction. Before we even analyze it, before we even get into what the real problem is, it's hard to accept it as life or death. And many of us have grown up to think of it as a minor problem. I certainly did. 
You know, I used to say to myself, yeah, I'm addicted. This is before OA. Yeah, I'm addicted, but at least I'm honest about my addiction. You can see my addiction, uh, at least, you know, but other people hide it. I, I have no idea why that was a mark of distinction, but that's that's what I was saying to myself. Um, and, uh, you know, I was pretty healthy when I joined OA. Uh, I was way overweight, uh, but I was I was healthy. And I still am healthy, and I come from a, a line of long-lived people, uh, and the chances are uh, that uh, uh, I will live a long time. But I also have diabetes on three sets of my grandparents, three out of four of my grandparents, and diabetes um, really killed my the the spirit of my father's mother and my well, yeah, I I think she had diabetes. I was a little young. But she certainly had overeating uh, uh, related prob uh, problems. It, it, it killed my, my my mother. Both of them, both my my father's mother and my mother had strokes that caused the last four years of their lives to be really miserable um, and early and painful. Um, and I know what's ahead. I, it's It's obvious what's ahead of me if I go back to what I used to be uh, uh, indulgent. So that's the first thing, life or death. Is it life or death? It's, it's not enough to say you're addicted. It, what's important, what's necessary to say it's life or death. I'm hopeless because, you know, there are many people in this world who need a cup of tea in the morning or a cup of coffee in the morning to get going and then don't have to drink it anymore during the rest of the day. Well, that is an addiction, but it's not a serious or medically dangerous addiction. But if you're like me, uh, you know, I was addicted to 12 to 20 cups. I needed 12 to 20 cups of coffee to get through the day. That was a medically dangerous situation. And I had to give up coffee uh, because it was dangerous. I was addicted to it. So addiction isn't necessarily life or death. But for those of us who are in this fellowship, who know what's ahead of us and who know the hopelessness of our addiction, it is life or death. And no matter how we work the steps, that is the one thing that binds those of us who have recovered in this fellowship. And that is the sense that is life or death, that this is the most important thing, that it, although we have all kinds of other important things to accomplish in this life, not the least of which is to giving love and sharing love with other people, um, it will be of no value if we continue our addiction. Uh, it, 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 and, and therefore, this is our number one priority. The other <clears throat> major barrier in Overeaters Anonymous to getting recovery in our uh, fellowship from our addiction is that we are an umbrella fellowship. We are not, on the one hand, a single substance fellowship like Alcoholics Anonymous, Cocaine Anonymous, Crystal Meth Anonymous, where it is obvious what you abstain from. You abstain from the single substance that you're addicted to. We are not a single behavior uh, fellowship like Gamblers Anonymous, taking risks uh, uh, of, of a certain kind, or uh, Codependence Anonymous, or you know, fellowships like that where behaviors are... Um, what we have to abstain from, and it's obvious what those behaviors are, or it's not maybe not a, uh, instantly obvious, but it becomes very obvious. But we are a fellowship that encompasses both 
individual eating behaviors, single substances, and all kinds of things in between, mixtures of those and mixtures of ingredients. Um, and it really depends on you in uh, specifically to figure out what it is that you have to abstain from. This is the group conscience of OA. We have to figure out what we must abstain from. And I can eat things that many people in this room cannot. And many people in this room can eat things that I cannot. Many people can indulge in behaviors that I cannot. And I can indulge in behaviors that many others cannot indulge in. Um, so to figure out what it is that we have to abstain from is one of the most difficult things in Overeaters Anonymous. Um, but I'm very glad that Overeaters Anonymous exists because otherwise I would be a member of Fataholics Anonymous, uh, maybe a member of Sugarholics Anonymous, uh, certainly a member of Saltaholics Anonymous, a member of, uh, you know, uh, Fake Ice Cream Anonymous, a member of, uh, I don't know, uh, certain specific brands of Rice Cake Anonymous, Popcorn, popcorn Anonymous, and all kinds of other specific foods. Um, plus, uh, you know, overeating, binging anonymous. Well, I don't want to be a member of all of those fellowships when I can just figure out what it is that I have to abstain from, not try to impose that on other people uh, as, as what they must abstain from, but simply abstain from that. So that is, again, really difficult. And I, as I said, I went through seven years of relapse. And I learned from those seven years a number of things. Well, the first thing I, I want to say that I learned was that sometimes the rooms of row A are too comfortable for people who are still suffering. Um, one of my mentors in this fellowship passed on now, used to say, and he didn't take credit for it. He said he heard it somewhere. He used to say, honesty without compassion is cruel. But compassion without honesty can kill. And I think that describes what happened, what was happening to me as I went through seven years of recovery, relapse, recovery, relapse, recovery, relapse, 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 relapse. I would go to the rooms of OA and people would say, how are you, Laurie? And I would say, fine. And they would say, great to hear that. We love to have you. Keep coming back. Uh, you know. Um, I'm, I've, I've been trained as a speaker, so people say, love to hear you talk, love to hear you talk. And uh, I just kept, keep kept coming to the meeting. But one day, the shyest woman in the room, who had told me later she had prayed for two weeks before she did this, came up to me and asked us the very same question that all kinds of other people were asking me. How are you, Laurie? I said, fine. And she leaned into me, and I can't quite do it because my my camera's up high above my monitor, but she said, I mean, really? And I will never forget that wonderful moment, although I wish I knew what date it was, but it was sometime either in the late, um, late December of uh, 1992 or January of 1993. And, you know, I could have said, how dare you take my inventory? You have no right to judge me. But I, I, you know, I'll never come to this meeting again, which, by the way, which would have, would have been a very good thing for the meeting, because because I'm a talker, uh, because I know how to talk, because I was going to this meeting, which was a relatively large meeting and had people, newcomers coming every week. 
and talking about how wonderful the steps were and how wonderful the program was when I clearly was gaining weight and clearly not walking the walk, but just talking and talking. And I, I must have turned off all kinds of people who said, well, if this is what this fellowship stands for, then what is Overeaters Anonymous got for me? Um, and, and, and that is, I mean, that's a real problem. We, we offer in OA a safe haven, but we don't offer an uncomfortably safe haven um, where people are challenged and where we know what our primary purpose is. Remember, our primary purpose, Tradition 5 tells us, is to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps to those who still suffer. Where did I get that from? Well, it says to carry our message, to carry its message to the compulsive eater who still suffers. What is the message? Having had step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message to the compulsive eater. And so what is this message? That we've had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. And that's, this, that's the same message that our groups have to carry. And what is the spiritual awakening? Step two explains it is something that gives us sanity. And that sanity is the ability to, is, is the constant, is the consciousness. Why would I indulge in ice cream? It killed me in the past. It's not going to kill me now. So this woman, the first thing I learned was that you have to be honestly compassionate or compassionately honest, that you have to, and, and, and that also means that our meetings have to make it boring for people who just come to be hugged and supported. The hugs and support come because we help people work the steps, but we're not a support group. We're not a therapy group. We're not a people where people park. We're not a group where people park their problems and say, I'm so glad to be in a place where people understand me. Yes, it's wonderful to be in a place where people understand you, but we are a 12-step fellowship and our message is to carry the recovery available to the 12 steps. Okay, so let me put that aside. The second lesson I learned as she confronted me and I began to work with her and then I began to get some semblance of recovery and I was asked to sponsor someone who had, it didn't matter terribly, it matters to me, but it didn't matter in the long run, who, who had been sober in AA for many years. And we began to study the big book in a way that I had never studied before. And I began to see this sense of this double whammy, this sense of once I start, I can't stop and uh, I can't stop from starting. And I began to see the, under, the clear message of that, which is that I wanted to be able to stop from starting. I wanted that incredible miracle, which I've had for over 29 and a half years of not wanting to indulge in that which I abstain from. And, and I may remind all of us, that is why people come to our fellowship. They don't come to find God. They don't come to find the promises on pages 83 to 84. They come to find the promises, pages 85 to 86, 84 to 85. The, the, you know, they don't come to find, you know, you will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. I mean, these are promises and they're, amazing promises that's not why people come they don't come to shut the door in the past not to shut the door in the past and no matter how uh what their uh, condition is uh, they will see how they can be useful to others 
They come because they want to be in this position of neutrality. They come because they know that it's a miracle for them when I say that it's a miracle for me that I have ice cream that goes bad in the, in the freezer, that I don't want to eat it, and so it goes bad, and that I can serve it to other people and not want it. They know that that's a miracle. It's not a miracle for anyone else in my, in my immediate family, but it's a miracle for me. So what I learned ultimately as I began to study the steps and understood this double whammy is that my first mistake was accepting a plan from my incredibly wonderful sponsor who said to me that my problem was the same as his and that my problem was I was a compulsive overeater and that I should go on a diet, work the steps, and then I could just follow that diet and eat all the things that I used to eat before, but in moderation, and the steps would give me that moderation. I would only have the half a cup, a half a donut or once a week, or the two cookies once a week, or the, or the, the one you know, half scoop of ice cream once a week, and that would satisfy me because that's what worked for him. And God bless him, he was a wonderful and inspiring sponsor. But his advice for me was to follow what he did, and that was ultimately a mistake for me. I, I don't fault him at all. Um, but to accept someone else's plan of eating or to accept even a nutritionist plan of eating does not and did not for me do the job. I had to figure out what caused me in the past, uncontrollable cravings. When I was dieting and working the steps, uh, before I took back the foods, when I was losing the weight, I was in fact abstaining from the things I had to abstain from because the diet was basically good diet that kept me away from all, the, all my trigger foods. But once I took back the foods because I had lost the weight, I was now again indulging in the stuff that caused me cravings. So I had to go through, I had to, first of all, accept that contrary to the advice of a lot of nutritionists and doctors and diets, all the diets I'd been on, and for people with eating disorder, with medically diagnosed eating disorders, bulimia and, and anorexia, contrary maybe even to their advice, there were not only behaviors I had to abstain from, like for me, binge eating, but there were also and for others, it might be uh, vomiting or it might be uh, restricting. There might also be particular foods or particular ingredients that I would have to abstain from because, as I say, we're an umbrella fellowship and some of us might have certain substances that cause us these cravings similar to what the alcoholic has. So I went through an analysis and it was a pretty stringent analysis, and uh, I, I could easily identify right off the bat some of the foods uh, that I had to abstain. I knew the foods I had to abstain from because they were the foods that you know just came into my mouth, and I would say, "I got to stop! I got to stop! I got to stop!" But the the it became clear that many of those foods had common ingredients, and for me, I was able to identify uh, fats high fat content with sugar or high fat content with salt. And, th and then I began to abstain from things that had a lot of fat in them, especially, and I, and, uh, especially from the, when mixed with sugar or mixed with salt. 
And but I also it took me a a, a, a a number of months before I figured out that there were eating behaviors that I had to abstain from. And I began to realize that I was I was a binge chewer that I, you know, I followed the advice of my old weight loss plan, way and pay plan of keeping my mouth busy by chewing gum and chewing celery and carrots in between my meals. What that did was create cravings in me that meant that my volume increased for me. But other people may not have that problem. I also identified the need to be filled figuratively up to the top of my neck. Uh, this need to be stuffed, which I had had all my life, uh, part of my family upbringing, really. Um, and I had to learn a way to moderate the volume I took in, in the same way that someone who is anorexic has to moderate the volume that they take in by eating more. I had to eat less than I normally did and figure out a way to monitor that. All kinds of intricacies related to that. I don't want to get into them, but that was my mistake. That was the first major mistake I made in my relapse was not accepting the reality that there were certain things I knew deep in my heart caused me uncontrollable cravings and that I had to abstain from them while working the steps in order to recover and get this sense of freedom of not wanting to go back to that which I was abstaining from. That was a very important time in my life and that happened around May the 1st of 1993. That's five minutes left. Thank you. And the second mistake I made, I'll, I'll just make it, is that I realized, you know, that's the physical part. That's the, you know, there are only two reasons for relapse. One is that the body is reacting, the cravings are coming, and you should really be looking at the food or the eating behaviors you're indulging and in, seeing whether or not you were in fact indulging in more things that you should be abstaining from. That's the first thing that I learned. The second is what are you doing about your mind? Are you working the steps? Are you working the steps in a way that gives you the recovery and has you keep the recovery? Very often I hear people saying in, in, when, they, when they're coming out of relapse, well, my sponsor wants me to read the doctor's opinion again, or they wants me to read the doctor's opinion of Bill's story. And we're going at it paragraph by paragraph. We're reading four paragraphs a day. And I say, from my perspective, have you learned a lesson from your relapse? Yes. Are you more desperate than you were? Yes. Is it more life or death? Yes. Do you accept that there were some foods you should have not be indulging anymore? Yes. Well, that's step one. Do you have the hope? Well, why do you have to read Bill's story to reread that, to understand that? Do you have hope that the steps will get give you the recovery? Yes. That's step two. Say the step three prayer and get right back to work on your step four, because it's steps four through nine that give you the recovery. And, you know, so are you working the steps in a way that gets you quickly to recovery? And are you making mistakes? The main mistake I found in, um, in my seven years of recovery is confusing step 10 and step 11. I thought that step 11 evening meditation was the equivalent of step 10. Um, so I would go through my day and deal with it. Um, I thought that step 10 also meant that I would apologize anytime I did something wrong. So when I yelled at my children, I'd apologize to them right away. I thought that's what step 10 said when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. I did not realize that step 10 is, is an incredibly powerful tool 
if you read the concept of continue to take inventory as meaning continue to do steps four through nine in the context of recovery. Well, I was yelling at my children, not because they were doing anything terrible, but because what was going on in my life during my times of relapses were the sicknesses and deaths of some very, very important people in my life, mostly my in-laws, uh, whom I loved tremendously and who are going through some difficult, difficult times. And my wife was going through even more difficult times than I was. And I loved, I loved my in-laws. And um, I couldn't do anything about that. I couldn't do anything about the resentment I felt that my wife was spending a lot of time with them, taking care of them. And I couldn't do anything about the guilt I felt feeling resentment for something that I knew she had to do and fully supported. Um, those are things I couldn't control. So I yelled at my kids. But step, if I had done step 10 in the way that I did step four and really gone through all that is going was going on in my life at the time and treating it as, as, as a full inventory, I would have discovered those things in a way that I did not discover them over the seven years of my relapse. So that's the other thing I want to suggest is that we consider that once we get the recovery in step nine, that steps 10, 11, and 12 are where we live. And that's where we maintain and grow in our spiritual uh, uh, awakening. Step 10 is doing what we did in steps four through nine in the context of recovery. <laughs> Step 11, really dealing on a day-to-day -day basis with how well we did this day and how much better we can do tomorrow. And thinking about our day and trusting that the unblocking of the pipeline between our deepest values, our higher power in our heart and our mind, uh, where we think and act, that the unblocking of that passageway gives us an intuition ultimately, as the big book promises, that allows us to live free, free from worry. We no longer worry about the consequences of what we do. We worry only whether what we do is in line or is aligned with our deepest values, our higher power. And step 12, how many people work their asses off in this fellowship? I remember reading the big book in 1986, 87 in my group, uh, reading the chapter, working with others. It may mean visits to the hospital, to telephone calls at all times, you know, all this sort of frantic things that the AA guys did, and they were mostly guys uh, in those days. And I would laugh. I'd say, Sorry, oh, that's what they do. It's time. Okay, I'll, I need about two more minutes. Mm -hmm. I would laugh and say, well, that's okay for them. Thanks. Um, uh, we have the telephone, you know, and I no longer believe that. You know, one of my one of my idols in this fellowship who doesn't use the big book to, to work the steps, it uses other, other methods of working the steps, but she's such an incredible person. And she says, everyone says they want what I have, but they're not willing to work as hard as I do to keep what I have. And, you know, we must carry the message of recovery to those who still suffer. We must. If we do it for ourselves, although we get incredible um, rewards for doing that, they're not the rewards of money, property, or prestige. They are the internal rewards of self-sacrifice and thinking of others and love and compassion uh, and, and a general well-being and the keeping of our spirituality. You know, the big book isn't kidding when it says, actually, they may be helping you more than you may be helping them. It doesn't matter whether they recover or not. I mean, it may matter in, in some personal way, but it's not up to you 
to have other people recover. It's up to each of us to recover. I think I've covered about everything I want to cover. So I want to thank you for the opportunity of carrying the message and I look forward to the rest of the meeting. Thank you. Oh, thanks so much, Laura. Thanks for a brilliant message of depth in a way. I'm just going to read just a small bit out of the big book um, to back up uh, Laurie's uh, experience, strength and hope. Page uh, 30 in more about alcoholism, chapter three. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, we will control and enjoy our drinking is the greatest obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. We learned we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people, or presently may be, has to be smashed.